today on episode number 374 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, James Lang returns, this time to talk about small teaching, the second edition. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so excited to be welcoming back to the show today, James M. Lang. He's a professor of English and the director of the Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption University in Massachusetts. He's the author of six books, the most recent of which are Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It, Small Teaching, Everyday Lessons from the Science of Learning, and Cheating Lessons, Learning from Academic Dishonesty, and On Course a week-by-week guide to your first semester of college teaching. Jim also writes a monthly column on teaching and learning for the Chronicle of Higher Education. His work has been appearing in the Chronicle since 1999. Jim's a highly sought-after public speaker and has delivered conference keynotes or conducted workshops on teaching for faculty at more than 100 colleges, universities, and high schools in the United States and abroad. Jim lives in Massachusetts with his wife, Anne, a kindergarten teacher in the public schools, and they have five children, ranging in age from their teens to early 20s. Jim and his wife formed and lead the Lang Family Foundation, to which he donates a significant portion of his writing and speaking income. The foundation provides grants to nonprofit organizations dedicated to the alleviation of poverty and homelessness support for the environment and the arts, and funding for libraries and public education. Jim Lang, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I, am not, I was trying to think, actually, how many times I've been on here. It might be the fourth, maybe? Yeah, I think it might be. And it's funny, I won't say who it was, but you have a, a person in our general sphere who feels very competitive about that and always wants to make sure that he's one ahead of you. So I'll probably get to have him back now, too. <laughs> All right. I'm going to have to listen and see if I can figure out who that person is. Oh, well, I am going to do something today. I've never done when you've been on the episodes before, Jim, but that I've never done in the history of the show. And I'm going to read from a journal. In fact, I'm going to read from your journal. And it's from January of 2014. And just to give listeners context, this is a journal that you wrote. And, and you're kind of reflecting just about failed New Year's resolutions, which I think. Could there be anyone listening to the show that doesn't need at least some season in their life where they have failed at that? So you wrote this in your journal. Had a good idea for a book project today. Side note, you really did have a super good idea for a book project today. The five minute intervention or teaching on the edges. It's about making brief interventions in a traditional class in order to maximize learning. So faculty don't have to start from scratch and rethinking their technique. Grounded in good cognitive theory, they can make five to 15 minute interventions that allow students to engage with the course and increase their learning potential. What's that like to revisit that entry today? 
that was really, it was really striking for me to go back. And occasionally, you know, I've been keeping journals for a long time and occasionally I will go back, you know, and, and just page through them a little bit. And it was really striking to come across that entry and realize how well that captured what the book Small Teaching ultimately became. And I think, as I said, and so I, I tell the story of that journal entry in the preface of the second edition. And I don't think, as I say there, I've ever had a book that like was that consistent from start to finish. Usually I have an idea, then it changes as I write and the book becomes something different. But in that case, it was very, very consistent from that moment until right through the second edition now. Robert Talbert has been doing this really fascinating series on his blog, uh, sort of revisiting his getting things done system. It's a productivity approach and all that. And so today on Twitter, he was asking about what kinds of questions that we might anticipate people having around something called zero inbox, just a way of managing one's tasks and attention, et cetera. And so I was writing to him to explain that I noticed that it's it's very technically easy. Let's say that, Jim, you wanted to declare email bankruptcy. Let's just imagine that you had 10,000 unread emails. This is a thing that happens. Hopefully not to you, Jim, but I've, I've known multiple people who just, it is every time they log into their email, it is just incredible stress. But to press the reset button is technically very easy to do. Select all archive. And then if you ever wanted to see this complete backload of utter shame and angst and all this stuff, like it's literally just click on it. So it is technically easy to do, but there's a mental block. And so before we get in to start talking about some of the small teaching approaches, they are all relatively easy to do in the sense of you don't have to go to a week-long course and complete that. that that's the whole premise of the book. What have you found in all of your continued speaking and coaching and, and, and helping faculty? What are some of the blocks that come into us even being able to access a small teaching technique? Where do you find some of those tensions exist from us even being able to tap in to the power of some of these things? Well, I think the challenge is um, there's so many teaching techniques out there that it can be sometimes challenging to think about like, well, why would I choose one over the other? So actually, I don't think the issue is so much like people are blocked from, from trying something new, especially something small. It's more like, like there's a thousand things I could do. So like, why would I do one thing more than the other? So, I mean, I think that's kind of like on one side of it. And then, you know, I mean, there's also the, the sort of, a lot of us, you know, once you teach for a few years, you, you kind of get a sense of what works, right? So like, I, I have a basic idea of what works from the students on my campus in my discipline. And like, I could kind of, kind of just keep doing that same stuff over and over again, you know, and, and get by basically. That's tempting to do because we have so many other things we're supposed to be doing, especially as we get along in our careers and we're being asked to do more and more, at least in my case, you know, I felt like I was just, you know, continually being asked to serve on more and more committees and um, participate more in the life of the institution, which is great. But when you have all those challenges, then it's sometimes tempting to say, all right, well, I'm just going to go in class. I know this works. I've done it before. Right. So to overcome like both those barriers, just being tempted to try something different, like um, tips and tricks and everything. For me, the, the principles are what's key there. So that's why, you know, from the beginning, small teaching has always been it's not a collection of tricks. It's actually here are principles that that we know help people learn. Now, once you've understood the principle, then you can identify what strategies are going to be helpful to you. But you've got to think first about which of the principles is most relevant. So when you go to that sort of secondary level, then it helps you 
figure out what kinds of things that you want to do in the classroom. And then on the other side, thinking about just sort of doing the same thing over and over again, for me, the real thing about that is I need to stay interested in myself. I don't want to be bored going into the classroom. Even if I know something's going to work, I still feel there's a value for me trying some different things just to keep myself energized because the energy that I bring into the room is going to have cascading effects to the students. And if I come in and just be like, okay, here's what we're going to do today. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, this, I've done this 20 times. I know it works, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm going to not bring that same level of energy. And so I think that is what I try to make the case to people. It's worth experimenting. You're going to fail sometimes, but it's worth just doing it to keep yourself energized and interested over a, you know, a 30 or 40 year teaching career. You have to do some of that in order to keep yourself engaged. And that's going to keep your students engaged. I'd like to think a little bit more about the failure because sometimes we really are failing. I mean, that <laughs> mm. you, you don't have to teach for long to recognize that sometimes we're failing. I find that sometimes people give up a little too soon. And so one example would be, and you write about this, that the, the idea of trying to invite discussion. I, as I was rereading, I shouldn't say as I was rereading, as I was reading the second edition of Small Teaching, it was interesting what I paid more attention to this time. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of differences and all that, but it, it was interesting what was really resonating. And I was, I was thinking of myself as I coach other faculty that sometimes I think with something like discussion, I probably have privileged too much the idea of discussion around things like pausing after you ask a question, because people have to unlearn how many times they're used to educators in their lives asking questions that they don't actually anticipate or desire an answer for. So you have to, I, I've talked a lot about that, but you really, it's not that I don't know this. I just don't think I explore it enough with fellow faculty, the idea of the kinds of questions that we ask to invite discussion. So that would be to me exactly what you just said of thinking through the principles before I go and use what's the eight second rule where I stop talking for eight seconds, you know, to invite those answers and get past that discomfort. So I feel like sometimes we give up not realizing how close we are to the finish line in terms of really having the kind of environment. What kinds of things have you seen that sometimes we give up on a little too soon before, you know, crossing over that, that, that allows enough time, I guess, for people to unlearn whatever it is they've learned in past educational contexts? So. I mean, the, the first thing I would say about that is, I mean, part of the reason I advocate for small teaching is because we tend to give up on things when we try to make a big change for the first time and it fails. <laughs> Those things are the bigger changes are more likely to fail in spectacular ways than the small change. <laughs> right. If I'm just making a small change to like the first few minutes of class, I've given up a few minutes of class. Right. And so, like, you know, that's not that big of a deal. But if I like restructure my entire course and realize in week three that it's not working, then I'm in real trouble. <laughs> right. The problem for me with that is that it might discourage me from making any change in the future. So like, that's why I really sort of advocate for people, even if you want to make big change, do it in increments to sort of get your feet wet and keep going forward. And I think small changes can absolutely lead to revolutionary changes. I know you've had Susan Bloom on to talk about ungrading. And one of the things that people, that contributors to that book, uh, ungrading advocated for, there are small ways to start ungrading. Everything, you know, revolutionary that we want to do in higher education, we can we can kind of walk our way to it more gradually. And that is going to make it less likely to have these kinds of spectacular failures that then just you kind of just turtle back in and say, you know, I'm just going to keep doing it the way I always do. It. The other thing I would say about this is um, students have to be kind of 
introduced and, and sort of in conditioned to accept different kinds of teaching approaches. So like they have to be normalized. If I come into the semester, like if I'm in a department where everybody lectures and I want to do a flipped classroom, you know, the students are going to have a negative reaction to that because not because necessarily that's wrong or they don't like it. It's just like, this is not what we're used to. So for me, it's also really essential that whatever change that you make, you come in very transparently about it and say, this is how things work in here. I realize that you might do things differently in your other classes, but this is the way this class runs. And here's why. And, uh, and I think you're going to love it. I think you have to do that very much when we're doing things that are new or different. And what I have found is that students are very willing when you do that to say, oh, okay, <laughs> that's how things go in here. And that's fine. Like I signed up for this class and, and you've been clear about it. So off we go. But if you're not like that, if you just come in and, and, and make an unexpected change, you don't explain it, it's not something they're used to, that's really where the, the problems arise. So being very transparent about it and you know, letting students know that this is how it goes in here, I think that's, that's the way to go. Yeah, I think that's important for a few reasons. One is just that to normalize it, like you said. I'm thinking about all the work that you've done and, and sharing so much of the research around retrieval practice. So like you said, instead of me trying to pour information into your head, I'm going to be in, giving you lots of invitations to retrieve the information. And sometimes I'll join in the games too. It depends on the game. Like if I'm, <laughs> if I'm certain that I'll quote unquote win the game, but I happen to be not like I have, I use these flashcards called Quizlet and there's a fun game yeah. called Quizlet Live. I am not a help if I'm on your team. I know what the words mean. I made the flashcards. I'm just not as fast as some of these guys. Some of these people are. So it's, it's like when I used to be a camp counselor in college, the kids always thought I was playing the sports really bad on purpose. No, this is just a natural <laughs> gift and that kind of thing. But anyway, so if I feel like I'm an even level player, I'll expose myself to that level of vulnerability so we can kind of have the metacognition of how does it feel to be wrong yeah. or not as fast. And I'll even share a little bit of you know some of the research on just because you're fast doesn't always mean you're going to be as right. So there's more to just being the first quote unquote winner in, you know, in much of the fields of work and research that we might enter into, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm thinking about ways to even, you said you were talking about sort of experimenting and not giving up too soon in terms of the small teaching retrieval practice is a huge place where we can find opportunities to do that. And one of the ways that you invite us to do this is even just thinking about if it feels too much to be, oh my gosh, what could I possibly do in this 50 minutes or this hour and 15 minutes to just look at just the beginning or just the end? What are some ideas that you have for us to even shrink down small teaching to even smaller increments just to start to dip our toes in? Well, and actually it's funny. I mean, this gets back to the sort of heart of small teaching and how it developed was my, my original idea for the book was to, it was, it was going to be like on the clock and it was kind of going to go through the time periods of the class and say like, you know, here's, here's great things that can be done in the first five minutes, the first 15 minutes. Then, but what I eventually realized was I really loved the beginning and ending, but the, the, the middle was just, there was too many possibilities. But I, I do love thinking about actually the beginning and ending of class as being these really ripe opportunities for trying new things. And again, part of that is just because the normalizing thing, right? Like coming in and saying, okay, this is how we start class every day. And that, like, that's a great way to kind of just introduce some engagement activity. And so for me, activities like from the first three chapters of the book, prediction, retrieval, and connection, opening and closing minutes of class are like the perfect opportunities to do these small things. So at the beginning of class, to ask students, instead of saying, here's what we did last time, to say, 
what did we do last time? Keep your notebooks closed for a minute or close your, keep your devices closed for a second. And I want you to just see if you can remember it. And I usually will say to students, because at a certain point, you're going to have to be able to do this on an exam. So let's just practice it now for a minute and see what would you be able to remember from the last class? And then, you know, if you do this every day, they, they get used to it and they get better at it. And at the end of class, I love using these connection notebooks where students, you know, write a short paragraph explaining how they, something that we talked about in class that they connects to something outside of the class, like something they learned in another class or something that they've experienced in their personal lives or something like that. So to me, like, you know, the, the heart of the class can stay the same. I might whatever be doing whatever mix of lecture and discussion and small group activities that I might normally do, but like to really think deliberately about how do I draw people in and get them engaged and thinking, and then how do I seal up the learning and send them off sort of knowing that I learned something new here today and it's going to be useful to me. I think those are absolutely crucial moments. And I often will say to people too, think about like films and television shows or like plays or whatever, how much weight is on those opening and closings. The opening is like, okay, am I going to be, am I going to devote my time to this? Like, or am I going to change the channel or, or watch something new? And then the ending is like, that's what leaves you thinking, right? Like that's the part that you continue to think about typically is what happened at the end. And it can make or break your sort of evaluation of the experience. So I just think those those two periods are really crucial. I enjoy listening to my husband Dave's podcast, and I love the question that he asks on almost every interview, and that is, what is something that you've changed your mind about in your particular field? So I'm curious, between the first version of Small Teaching and the second edition, what have you changed your mind about? Yeah, so there's a lot of smaller changes along the way, new introductions to some of the chapters, new conclusions, some new models. The two big changes, though, are... There was a chapter called Self-Explaining, which was about inviting learners to kind of speak aloud their processes, their learning. And you might think about, for example, this is most easily taught or used in like maybe sort of studio type classes or when people are doing skill-based development. So, you know, having people talk out like what they're doing as they're doing it and, and then kind of responding to that and trying to guide them through the process. And I kind of ultimately came to believe that self-explaining is a smaller version of explaining more generally. And that explaining your learning, what you have learned to another person is actually the bigger category there. So that chapter has been expanded now, which allowed me to go into the literature on learning through teaching, right? So there is actually a great set of experiments and studies about helping people learn something by teaching it to someone else. Uh, and I just love that idea. I love having my students try to teach things that they've learned to another audience. So that really resonated with me. So, so now there's a bunch of research and some models for learning through teaching in that chapter and sort of essentially learning through explaining your learning to someone else. So self-explaining, you know, I still think is, is relevant. And so it's still in there, but the research base on that one was never quite as strong as it was for us, some of the other principles. But once I expanded it, then that, that base became much stronger. The other one was on mindset. And so, you know, since the book was published and even shortly before the book was published, you really started to hear a lot and a lot of stuff about mindset and about the power that mindset had when students believe that their um, intelligence can be improved and they have a growth mindset, when they believe their intelligence is fixed or is a stable entity, they can't really change. That's a fixed mindset. And Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, and, and her research and research teams and collaborators um, did a lot of experiments and studies on showing how the positive impact of growth mindset and negative impact of the fixed mindset. Of course, anything that's that popular gets pushed back. And there was a lot of some pushback that has happened in recent years saying, well, look, 
you know, there are actually systematic barriers to people succeeding. You can't just change people's mindsets and assume that that's going to solve everybody's problems. And that's, of course, true. I still, however, there is still even very recent research in the last year or two, some very large scale experiments, which I think have showed the potential positive impact of growth mindset, including one on the teachers, how the instructor's mindset actually has an impact on students. So that when instructors have a growth mindset, it has these positive impacts on student performance and, and retention, especially on students who may have been traditionally underrepresented in higher education. So, you know, I, so I still believe in the power of mindset, but I ultimately came to believe that mindset is actually also like a kind of a subset of a larger thing, which I wanted to address, which was cognitive belonging. In other words, do, to what extent do students feel like they are belong in the class and on campus at an intellectual level? Like, do they believe they're capable of succeeding in my class? And I think mindset is one thing that can help with that. If, if I have a growth mindset, then yes, I probably believe that I'm going to be able to succeed in any type of class if I put in enough effort. But there are other things that we can do to show students, no, you belong here. Like, you've made it this far in your education, which means you have talents and skills that you have brought here that you can use to help you succeed. So that chapter two got expanded to, include more recommendations for how we can support the cognitive belonging of every student, including students who may still face those systematic barriers, discriminations based on race or, or other factors. So how we can help all students feel like they belong on campus, no matter what other barriers they might be facing. That's one thing that we as faculty members can do in our classes to say, whatever might be else be going on in your life, you belong here. Like you belong here in this class with me. And I'm, I believe you're capable of succeeding here. And to me, that's a really powerful message that we can send in a lot of different ways. Mindset is one of those ways, but it's not the only one. Something that comes to mind from past guests when it relates to this, there, there's a couple things. One is just thinking to the work that VG Sathy and Kelly Hogan have done. And I'll, I'll put in the show notes a link back to the episode in case people missed this one. But that some institutions now are starting to put together dashboards so that we can see the disproportional ways in which we create or participate in systems that might have detrimental effects based on factors we would not want to to uh, affect people's grades, et cetera. And then even just the some of the same small teaching techniques that you talk about, again, it starts with principles, like you said, it's not just technique, but I have to understand those those principles first before I get into finding out what the right practice is, but just the market differences that can show up there. But it kind of has to start with this awareness that actually the things that we do in class can be exclusionary, can create that lack of a sense of you don't belong here. And we've heard so many stories or some of us have experienced this ourselves of the look to your left, look to your right, you know. And actually, I mean, Kelly and uh, Vijay's book that should be coming out next year and, and uh, from West Virginia University Press the series that I edit, and it's in a fabulous book. And of course, they have an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a guide to inclusive teaching. But what I love so much about it, and it's it's very compatible with small teaching, is what they call high structure, right? Putting high structure on the things that we do in class to make sure that everybody is um, included and feels like they know what they're doing. And I, you know, give an example of this in the book that you know, when I used to give instructions for students to do something in small groups, I would be like, okay, here's the thing to do. Now get to work. And invariably 30 seconds or a minute later, someone would raise their hand and say, what are we supposed to be doing again? 
And then I was, and then I would tell him, but I, inside I'd be like, come on, why didn't I just told you what it was, right? But Kelly, yep. did you point out that, you know, there are students who have um, challenges with attention, who might have hearing problems. Um, there may be all kinds of good reasons why a student did hear that instruction the first time. So their simple recommendation, you know, for like a high structure thing, when you're going to assign students to do something in groups, put the instructions in writing and put them on a slide, put them somewhere where it's visible so that students can look up and see them at any time. And a student who maybe missed my like 30 second explanation can still get those instructions at any time. So like it's tons of simple things like that that they argue for that I think are under the category of like high structure. And in my mind are like one of the best things we can do for inclusive teaching. Because there are students who know how to do school, right? Like my, my wife's a teacher, I'm a teacher. Our kids know how to do school. Like they can come in, they know what it's like. They've been seeing teaching parents their whole lives. But there are plenty of students who don't like automatically know how to do the things that we take for granted. Yeah, this is what we do and, and students should know how to do that. So the more we can be explicit about, here's what we're gonna do, here's why, and here are the steps you need to take. Of course, the students who know, to, know how to do school, that's fine for them. Like they don't, they, maybe they don't need that, but it doesn't hurt them. And it, it helps everyone else. Like every, all the people who, you know, might not have that same level of experience or confidence, suddenly now they are included into that activity in the experience in a way they might not have been otherwise. Another aspect that you bring up regularly is, I think it's both meta, but also ties to the sense of belonging. I know that in my own failures in teaching, I'll put too much pressure on myself, that, that I need to be the one creating the sense of belonging. And first of all, there's a scale issue there, <laughs> but there's also a context issue there that I'm not going to be able to relate to everybody's context in the ways that I wish that I could. Could you talk about some of the ways that we can evolve our thinking that we have to put so much on ourselves and that a sense of belonging can take shape student to student and even you know thinking about external audience as well? What are some other ways, instead of having everything have to land on our shoulders, to help people really feel like they belong? Yeah, I mean, we can do lots of simple things. My favorite um, example of helping students feel like they belong, and I, I wrote about, I've written about this both in Distracted and my last book and in Small Teaching too, is these sort of values and strengths affirmations that we can do at the beginning of a, a class where we invite students to say, you know, tell me what you're good at, essentially. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it, but what do you care about and what are you good at? And so like inviting students to share with us and with one another, you know, what their strengths and talents are. There's very good research on values affirmations, which show that just inviting students to sort of one time at the beginning of a semester to tell you the things that matter to them or the things that they're good at, that can have a significant positive difference on retention and performance in a class. So that's like, to me, is like a classic example of small teaching. Um, it's not like I have to be up there doing a lot of stuff. It's just an invitation at the beginning of the class I, you know, in a face-to-face -face class, I have them fill out an index card. You could do it on a discussion board. You could do it in private, like emails, however you want to do it. But just invite your students to say, look, we're gonna, here's what the class is about. We're going to do all stuff. I'd like to know a little bit more about you. And so I'm going to ask these simple questions. But what I really want to know is, what are you good at? What do you care about? And there are parts of that that might help you succeed in this class. And just reminding students about the fact that, yes, you've been successful so far you have talents and strengths, that seems to be have a really positive impact at the beginning of a learning journey when you get a reminder about that. Yeah, I can do this, right? We were talking earlier about like, sometimes getting nervous before we speak, you know, in public or something like that. And for a while, actually, 
I had a little notebook with me and I had written down in the notebook, some of the most challenging speaking things that I had been in. Like when I had to, you know, speak to a convention in Mexico and there were like 600 people and an interpreter and like another one where I had to speak to like a thousand people. And I just had the names of these things. And right before I went on to speak, I would look at him and it just reminded me, okay, Jim, you've done this before and you were successful. So like you can do it again. Mm -hmm. So it was a great little simple thing to help me. And I think the values and strengths affirmations can have that same positive impact on students. I didn't even realize that I do a version of that. I didn't, I didn't make the connection until you said that. For me, I try to shrink the audience. So I try to think about a person. Would there be a person that I might be able to help in some small way be more effective in their teaching, which ultimately then trickles down? And I, I have to just shrink it down. It's too much to think, you know, hundreds and hundreds <laughs> yeah. of people. What if there was just one person? Would that matter? And then you multiply that person times however many classes that they teach, that kind of thing. So I kind of have my own small, small speaking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's a little things that we can do, definitely, absolutely, that help you feel more confident. And, you know, that's going to translate into a better conversation you're going to have with people. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. So one of the areas where I think people sometimes have a little bit of difficulty embracing is the idea of motivation. I've, I've heard some people share just that that should really be the onus on the person to bring that to their their. But you were talking about knowing how to do school. So kind of expecting that someone else should should dial up or down their own sense of motivation, that 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 responsibility shouldn't be placed. How do you think about that in terms of principles of where where does the responsibility for motivation lie? And I'm sure it's not a binary answer. But what are yeah, some of, of your course, it's not a binary answer in two ways. First of all, it obviously is something for both to, to think about both from the teacher and student responsibility. But the other important uh, sort of non the way in which it's not exactly a binary for me is the, you know, the, the kind of customary we think about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And my view on this has kind of actually evolved over the past year. So, you know, eight years ago, cheating lessons came out and, you know, I was really kind of made a, a pretty strong argument for really trying to focus on intrinsic motivators. And I think there's good research that shows that that's really important, that we need to have those intrinsic motivators. And a lot of school-based motivation is, is extrinsic in the form of grades and degrees and all that kind of other stuff. So we do need to kind of pull up those intrinsic motivators in any way that you can. I have to say, though, over the past few years, as I've continued to look at that research and think more and more about this question, I've kind of come to believe that actually we need both, um, that we really do need to have both intrinsic and extrinsic motivators in order to be successful. And, you know, again, I can look at lots of places in which people do that. Like, as I always say, you know, we should, you should want to get in shape. And so as a result, you should want to exercise. And so, you know, you should be intrinsically motivated to do that, but many people don't seem to be. And as a result of that, they sign up for 5Ks. They like engage in these like, you know, social things where it's they post what they've done and their accomplishments and badges and stickers and all that stuff. And both those things, you know, once you do that, then maybe you start recognizing how good it is for you, you feel good. And so then it kind of, you know, these two things can support one another. I know too from my own writing, like I write in a journal and everything, and I like that. If I don't have a contract or I don't have something that I know, I can be very lazy about my writing. But when you give me a contract, I'm going to get the book in on time. <laughs> and so like, I need it too. I need both extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, even though I love writing and would do it every day and, and could do it every day for the rest of my life and be happy. I still, to get it out there, get it published and, and get it you know, out to people, I, I need a little bit of extrinsic motivation. So, you know, my view about this is that we, we need to think a little bit about both. How are we using extrinsic motivators like grades and compassionate 
and effective ways. And there's lots of research on that and, and good thought-provoking stuff in uh, ungrading and other places. And so we, we, I do believe there's a place for that. But then, of course, we also want to make sure that we're trying to help them foster intrinsic motivation, you know, pointing to the purpose of what we're doing, trying to highlight the emotional content of what we're doing. These are all ways that we can use to foster intrinsic motivation. But you'll see now in that chapter on motivation, um, it is a mix of intrinsic and extrinsic things. And I think kind of like I always say to people in terms of like my, my most fundamental principle about teaching is vary what you're doing because people learn all kinds of different ways. And so if you only do ever do one thing, you're probably going to be excluding some people. So everybody should have a time when they feel comfortable. Everybody should have a time when they feel challenged. It only happens when we vary our methods. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true for motivation, right? Only emphasizing extrinsic motivation is going to leave some people out. Only emphasizing intrinsic is going to leave some people out. And so we want to be able to maybe try to have a mix of extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. Before we switch over to our recommendation segment, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that whole idea of just changing things up, because that is another aspect. It is a really low hanging fruit, pretty easy thing to do, but not something that I see very many of us take the full advantage of just what a gift it can be to helping to redirect attention. Yeah, I mean, we tend to lock in on our, our you know, three or four t- teaching things that we like to do. And in, um, in, the, in the book, Distracted, I write about one of my favorite things that I ever experienced to help me think about this differently was this workshop I went to called Inspired by Index Cards, which was, came from, I think, a workshop that Kimberly Tanner had done in biology. And, you know, the facilitator had us write down, she said, I want you to think about everything that you do in class, like all the different things, like mini lectures and discussions and, you know, worksheets, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when you write down all these things, there's 10 or 12 of them on different index cards. And then she just really encouraged us, think about your next class and start like playing around, pulling in different cards and like ordering them in different ways, really trying to think about what does this mean for attention and learning if I did it like this? But what if I flipped three of these cards and pulled in two different ones? What does that look like? It's a really great and simple way to like, first of all, think through the the logic of what you're doing, but also to mix it up. Right. And like, I know all these things are good, but maybe I try them in a different order now and again. And that that's going to have a different, you know, that's going to appeal to a different set of students or that's going to promote learning in a, in a different kind of way. So I really love that. That is I, something I always encourage people to try, you know, get, it, get yourself a pack of index cards or do it online, write down everything you do, pick an upcoming class, and then try three or four different sequences and see what they look like. And do that for a few weeks. And then, you know, you'll, then they'll start to kind of become ingrained in you and you'll be able to do it maybe without needing that, that prop, but it's a really, really helpful thing to do. Before Jim and I get to the recommendations part of the podcast, I wanted to share briefly about today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. I didn't realize it until now, but it actually relates to the story I shared earlier about having such a overwhelming inbox, and they can be so difficult to manage and can cause so much stress and not be a very good use of our time. But a service like SaneBox helps address that and helps sort things out very intelligently between those things that really should require our attention and those things that could be left for a time when we had the opportunity to read those newsletters or look at the emails that aren't directly something we need to take action on on a given day. So what happens is you can set it up with a Gmail account or Office 365. You can use an iCloud or really any email address and get it set up and running. And it trains your email and it looks at just the headers. It doesn't look at the entire body of the email and it sorts them according to some default folders. But over time, you can also set it up where you could retrain something if 
if it put a newsletter in, but you really want to see that newsletter every time it comes out, you just drag it over to your inbox and you train it that simply and it remembers. And by the way, I hardly ever have to train it because it gets it right so often that it just sets it up really well. There are other features that you can snooze emails or email someone and have it remind you if they don't get back to you by a prescribed length of time. It's a wonderful addition to email, makes it work for you much more in terms of thinking about our time and attention and how to use them wisely. And so if you head over to sanebox.com slash T-I-H-E, as in teaching in higher ed, you can get a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription and try it out for a while and see how it works for you. So again, thanks again to SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode and head over to sanebox.com slash T-I-H-E to check it out. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations, and I want to recommend the second edition of Small Teaching. And on an episode about, I don't know, four or six weeks ago, my husband and I did a episode about advice to a new professor. And in that, at the end, we talked about what books we would recommend that if you're just going to start out on your bookshelf. And I, I hope this doesn't affect your publisher too much. But I said, wait until August. So because <laughs> wait until August. If it's after August, I mean, it's it's a great I mean, of course, small teaching. The first edition was a wonderful treasure for me as well and always will be. But the revision is beautiful and wonderfully done. I love just it's it is a book I will take out and take out and take out and kind of like the index cards. I didn't really realize that maybe you should sell an index card version of it or something. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> because it so really does... baseball hats and index cards with small teaching on it, right? <laughs> yeah. And I also think too, the index cards that there's this tension that's really healthy. I think between structure is helpful. And you talked about having high structure classes and the inspiration that you draw from VG Sathy and Kelly Hogan yet also mixing it up. So I, I can't walk in and know exactly what I'm going to get, but I can't walk in and know nothing of like, it's exactly what you said of some comfort Perfect. level, like a beautiful you know piece of jazz or something like that. The beat is there, but then there's that break and you didn't know the break was coming. And um, yeah, we need structure and routine, but we also need to have it mixed up now and again to kind of reawaken our attention to, to the experience of being in the class. It's a really yeah. good book. And I, I mean, I could seriously say, just recommend all of your books. You talked about Distracted and it's just been a wonderful treasure for me and for my colleagues as well. And then Cheating Lessons. It feels like we just had a conversation, which of course we did have conversations <laughs> way back when. So no wonder it feels like that. But your books really are very much like a dialogue with things that we're challenged by. And you both empathize with us and the things that we struggle with because we get the sense that you have struggled with them as well and that you don't probably have, you know, perfect classes, whatever that might look like. And... <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I always say to people, I'm a great observer and thinker about teaching. I'm a pretty good teacher, but my actual best skill is observing and thinking about and noticing what other people do. That's really great. Yeah. So I hope people will pick up a copy of Small Teaching, the second edition, and I'm going to pass it over to you to whatever you'd like to recommend. All right. So the new, um, I already talked about the explaining and belonging chapters. Of course, the other chapter that was majorly revised was the final chapter, which was about how we can grow and learn as teachers continue to grow and learn. So there are all kinds of new updated resources in there, including, of course, this podcast, which was one of the things that was recommended in both. So a couple of things from that chapter. One is there's a new series of books from Princeton University Press called Skills for Scholars. They're very short, compact books. There's one on the syllabus, for example, which is great. And so you know, take a look at that uh, book series and, and there's there's new stuff coming out all the time. I think there's a half dozen already out uh, and plenty more coming. And the other thing that I recommend there was 1HE, which is a kind of a faculty development 
organization from the UK, um, which is actually using small teaching as kind of a model and creating these 20 minute courses that, that, that people can take and, and learn more about all kinds of different topics. And so I'm actually helping them put together a series of courses called Invitation to University Teaching, which would be like these 10, 20 minute courses that people can take just to kind of get the basics on all kinds of different stuff. So they're doing good work as well. Uh, and then I'll just, one other fun one. I recently read Edward I think it's Slingerland's book, uh, Drunk, which is a great, a gorgeous example of like what nonfiction writing can be. Slingerland kind of argues that sort of our, our, our love of sort of intoxication in general, whether, whether that's through, you know, drinking or drugs or other forms of like ecstatic dancing and all this stuff, um, that this has actually been a significant cultural driver in human history, both for the creation of culture, for the establishment of our communities and for our creativity. Um, so he looks at those three things, culture, creativity, and community. Uh, and it's a really fascinating, like he draws from all kinds of other disciplines. Like he's a philosopher, but he draws from anthropology and psychology and biology and history and looks at all these arguments to really kind of argue, to, to make the point that this has actually been a kind of neglected uh, and important thing um, that has driven um, the advancement of human civilizations. So whether you're interested in the topic or not, it is like a masterclass in nonfiction writing. So um, if you're interested in doing that kind of crossover writing, like, you know, you're an academic and you want to try and write for a broader audience, this is a great book to, to, to read in order to learn more about how to do that effectively. James Lang, I'm so delighted to get to have the continuing conversation with you, both through your books and through the times when you're so generous with your time to come and share with us on Teaching in Higher Ed. I've learned so much from you, and I'm just full of joy that that gets to continue. I know you've got projects percolating, and I just can't wait till we get to have the next conversation about whatever you've been observing and, and documenting. All right. Thank you. I'm looking forward to doing it again soon. Thanks once again to Jim Lang for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed and sharing about the second edition of Small Teaching. Thanks also to each of you for listening and to being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. I keep encouraging people to sign up for the weekly newsletter because that is a continued conversation with the kinds of things we talk about on the show. You can subscribe at Teaching in Higher Ed dot com slash subscribe. You'll get the show notes from the most recent episode along with other recommendations that don't show up in the show. And you'll also get a short ebook that has some of the tools that I use in my own productivity and in my teaching. Thanks once again for listening to Teaching in Higher Ed and I'll see you next time.